you would take out your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. We will be reading from there this evening. After much more thought, I thought it would be more appropriate if we were to read all the way through verse 21, the whole the entirety of the chapter, just because of the content of um, the message this evening and um, Article 20 of the Belgic Confession, so we'll read all of Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift By the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Father, the psalmist cried out, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy, thy sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we pray that this evening, Father, corporately asking uh, that the words that I speak will be edifying to the hearts of your saints, that it will lift them up, that it will encourage them, and that it will lead them to cling to Christ for all hope and for all comfort. For this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
We'll also look down at Article 20 of the Belgic Confession. We'll read that together. People of God, I'll give you a moment to pull it out. People of God, what do we confess? We believe that God, who is perfectly merciful and also very just, sent his son to assume the nature in which the disobedience had been committed in order to bear in it the punishment of sin by his most bitter passion and death. So God made known his justice toward his son, who was charged with our sin, and he poured out his goodness and mercy on us, who are guilty and worthy of damnation, giving to us his son to die by a most perfect love, and raising him to life for our justification, in order that by him we might have immortality and eternal life. If you'll look over at the outline, at the introduction, this can really be summarized in one very clear sentence, and that is this. God's mercy and his justice is made known by the death, judgment, and resurrection of Christ, which is the warrant of our salvation. You'll notice in particular, especially if you were to glance at all three points, that what is really prominent, I think, throughout this article, even, in, even, in, even as we think about God's mercy, is the centrality of God's justice. Uh, and so that features in all three points. And we'll begin with the first one this evening, the requirement of God's justice. Mankind must be judged and punished for his sin. Mankind must be punished and judged for his sin. Man's judgment is so, or is a reality, because of the fact that God is just. It's an unquestionable, unequivocal, unequivocal reality. Sin, according to God's righteousness, his holiness, his justice, cannot go unpunished. And so therefore, since we are all humans, since we're all men, or human, in the proper sense, and not to be cliche, as one wizard says, there is no way out. There is no way out. You cannot be prideful about it. You have no way out of the verdict of sin and death. So letter A. Sin is offensive to God's infinite majesty and holiness that the offender must, offender must be punished in infinite measure. So, in reality, the punishment, when we, when we try to perceive the punishment that is due for offense against God's holy majesty, we have to reckon with the fact that God is infinitely wise, infinitely good, infinitely holy, infinitely majestic. And so that which is contrary to his holiness, contrary to his infinite righteousness, must be met with a penalty that is commensurate, that reflects, that is equal to the, the level of offense that it is against his holy majesty, the level of offense it is against his righteousness. And so that offense is infinite in measure. Now, letter B, the pending judgment is um, 
fancy term, adumbrated or foreshadowed or pictured by the verdict God has already given, which is death. The pending judgment is adumbrated, foreshadowed, pictured by the verdict that is already given, death. Um, There's a very simple way that we can indicate this or, or support this from Scripture. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And the wages of sin is death. That's such a short saying to convey such a stark and hollowing and harrowing reality. And this, of course, goes all the way back to the garden, to that covenant that God made with Adam. In Genesis 2.17, You must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Unrighteousness is met with the very swift verdict of death. And it's, the reality is that this isn't just a foreshadowing. It isn't just an, a quote-unquote adumbration, if you will. It isn't just a picture of the eternal and infinite judgment that God has in store for that which offends his majesty and his righteousness. It is a real expression in this age of God's judgment for sin. There's another number of examples that we find of this in the New Testament. You think of Uzzah, who was the man that that reached out as the ark was falling off of the cart that the ox has dragged it on. And he goes, good intentions in mind. He goes as a guilty, stained, tainted sinner to catch the ark. And when his impurity meets with God's purity, with, with his holiness, the instant verdict that he's met with is death. It was so offensive to God's majesty, sin cannot come into contact with him. You have that generation at Meribah who, whose verdict for their sin was that they would perish outside the land of life, if you will. The land flowing with overflowing life, with milk and honey and goodness and prosperity, they couldn't enter. And you think on, for instance, also in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, who for their sin were met with the verdict of death. God's verdict for wickedness is death. So let her see. This means that in order to escape God's judgment, we have to escape death. There is literally no, no other way out. The only thing that we can do is try to escape death. And so if we want deliverance in the verdict that people need is life. And I think as I, as, I, as I interact with this, and this is maybe the voice of um, one of my former mentors at one of the churches that I previously served at in thinking about this this way, but I think if, if we were to analyze all of the problems that we have in life, and, and not, to be, uh, not, to, not to suggest that they don't matter, but of all of the problems that we have in life, There is no problem greater than that posed to us by the threat of death and by the reality of death. Least of all because no other problem is certain save death, right? 
um, how's the saying go? Not even taxes, really. You can evade those. But death is far more certain. And reckoning with this, dealing with the reality of your own pending death, is what drives us to look for an answer. And it's important in that sense. So the good news, then, is that, that God's, as we interact with this article, as we interact with Scripture, is that God's justice is satisfied in a way that escape is actually made possible. God's justice is satisfied in, in such a way that an escape is made possible. And I think in some sense, too, the fact that we are still here, that that infinite judgment has not come upon yet all of mankind is what heralds to us that there is an answer out there. There is an escape out there. There is a solution out there that helps us deal with the reality of death and that coming infinite judgment for which it serves as a picture and an expression of. So number two, the justice at the cross. God satisfied his justice when he punished Jesus Christ for our sin and he was handed over to death. And that is the best news possible. That Jesus Christ was handed over to death for your sake. And he does this, as Article 20 says, by his perfect love. But array, Jesus took on human flesh for the elect to bear in true human nature the just judgment of God against sin. Jesus took on human flesh for the elect to bear in true human nature the just judgment of God against sin. Uh, God cannot, when we interact with this reality that God did indeed on the cross pour out his judgment on Christ, we're met with a conundrum, if you will. We're met with a problem. We're met with something that doesn't quite make sense. God cannot punish a righteous man for no reason. And so the only way that Jesus could be given a judgment of God, a wrathful verdict by God his Father, is if God were to grant or credit to him or charge, with, charge upon him the unrighteousness of those for whom he stood as representative. And so you have this great exchange. This imputation of our sin to Christ so that it was uh, our sin that was punished and, 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 and poured out, wrath poured out upon him for our sin. He can't be punished otherwise. He cannot be given over to death otherwise. Right? That, that doesn't really make sense since Christ was a righteous man, since he was without sin, unless he is receiving somebody else's guilty verdict. The Old Testament, of course, supports this when it says, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Letter B. This was not just a happenstance event, but God handed him over to die. This was not just a happenstance event, but God handed him over to die. We get this from... One passage in particular that I think makes this point clearly, 
Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So the point that we're making here is that there is an active thing, an active doing, an active choice that God is, is making in handing Jesus over to die. It wasn't just that Jesus arbitrarily or, or happened to be on the cross and, and happened to be in a position where he would bear our sin. It was the will of God, the Father, to crush him. And I love the language that Paul uses in speaking about his death in Romans 5. While we were still sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this death then, as Paul discusses later in the chapter, and this this death that is representative of Adam's guilt and of Adam's sin as a verdict for his failure, this death upon Christ is that legal verdict that declares, to, uh, declares upon him before all men that he is guilty. But why would a righteous man, Paul questions, die for the unrighteous? Why would, why would a, a righteous man die for the righteous? It's hard for for you to give up your, your life, for you to sacrifice your, your own wants, your own needs, and your desires for somebody that is righteous. It's hard to do that for your mother, father, brother, sister, husband, wife, etc. But how can you sacrifice, how can you lay down your life for a sinner whose offensiveness, whose taint, whose guilt offends your holy majesty in infinite measure. That is a marvelous, that is a, that is a, a marvelous reality that I don't think we can understand. And there's another angle that we can take upon it. God actively turns his face against the Son in judgment. And let's personalize it. Since we're coming up on Genesis 22. The father actively turns his face upon the son. In that sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Um, the Hebrew in, in Genesis 22. For where that, that, that place in which it occurs. Where Abraham takes Isaac up to sacrifice him is called Moriah. Uh, the word Moriah is a Hebrew participle. It means the place of seeing. And the author, uh, uh, Moses, is really playing with the, his description here and the way that he tells this story that, that Abraham goes up to this place of seeing and as he's about to strike that blow upon Isaac, he looks up and behold, what does he see? A ram. And then if you were to invert it, At the place of the skull, Golgotha, God saw to it that there was not a substitute for his son, but that his son was the substitute for the guilty party. So let her see. This means that we who are guilty and worthy of damnation receive mercy that demonstrates to us and reminds us of his love.
The reality is that our sin has been dealt with at Calvary. Again, death is a legal verdict for sin. And Jesus cannot die unless he is being judged as sinful or as guilty. But he's not. He's, he's a righteous man. So it's, it's our guilt, it's our, our shame and our damnation that was laid upon him on that cross. So that what's instead given to you is a clean slate. As he wipes away your sin, as he endures that punishment, there is no verdict left for you of God's wrath. There is no more in store for you a drop of God's wrath, we should say. So then, to put this in the perspective of the experience of the Christian life, Satan has a name that's, that's very common that we know him by. The accuser. The reality is that Satan, the accuser, cannot accuse you. And that's what he wants to do. He, he is out to convince you that you're not good enough. He's out to convince you that your sin is not dealt with. He is out to convince you and to trap you, as it were, in sinking sand. To crush your hope by, by overwhelming you with guilt, by overwhelming you with sorrow, and thereby rob you of your hope and your comfort and your confidence in Christ. But Paul says, one can scarcely die for a good man, and yet God in Christ died while we were sinners. So is, is for Paul, of, by the way, of all people to say that, this murderous zealot whose shame knew no limitations, for Paul to say, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, these ungodly, tainted people, and for him to have confidence in that, is indicative that our sin has been completely dealt with, that that voice of Satan, that that voice of our own conscience that tells us we're not good enough, that tells us that we're too sinful to be recipients of God's grace, that tells us that we haven't been righteous enough yet, is a voice that is discredited by the passion of Christ on that cross. And the confidence that we have there in that is, is not the degree of our righteousness. It's not the degree of, necessarily speaking, of our sanctification. Our confidence in that is the love of God for the elect in Christ. He did this by his perfect love. So in the experience of life, in the loneliness of life, in the experience of one who has no friends, who does not know the kind of love that Christ has for us, this love and this confidence is relevant. For the lonely, the afflicted, the one who has no friends, this is the extent of his love for you, that while you were still a sinner, whose offense was infinite in measure, he lays down his life for you. For the beaten, the lowly, the one struggling with guilt, the one convinced that you aren't good enough for Christ to save, infinite measure of offense, infinite measure of love. And yet, in some sense, to leave it 
at the, at the passion of the cross would be kind of problematic. Because all we have then is a clean slate. We, we ascribe to Christ's passion and his bitter death uh, the title of his passive obedience. That is to say, to speak, at least generally speaking, about the atonement. His suffering and death on the cross is, is, is that climactic moment where our sin was atoned for. The blood debt was paid. But what about his righteousness? What about resurrection? What about our death? If all we have is that clean slate from the pouring out of, our, of God's justice upon him for our sake, then we still have a problem. We're still going to die. And then what happens when we die? This brings us to the third point, the justice in his resurrection. God's justice is also revealed in the resurrection of his son. In other words, God's just judgment was not just revealed in the death of Christ, it's also revealed in the resurrection of Christ. God's justice is revealed in resurrecting Christ. How can that be? How can God raise him who he reckoned as guilty and punished and handed over to die? Letter A. Christ was raised from the dead because he was righteous and obeyed the will of the Father. So Jesus' righteousness all of his life to the whole law, to all of the law that God gave to Moses and, and to Israel, to the Decalogue, uh, is, is in massive part the righteousness that we speak of that he, he positively merits in order to earn eternal life. We refer to this as Jesus' active obedience in contrast to his passive obedience, what he positively did all of his life to obey God. So if we were to go back to the garden, we recognize that Adam needed to merit his entrance. He needed to earn his entrance by perfect obedience to the law if he wanted to enter that new heavens and that new earth, that, that city that God was building and the, the end of where God was bringing creation as this master builder. And the de facto principle that we see for Adam that Paul explains in the second half of Romans 5 is that righteousness equals entrance to life. Righteousness equals declaration of justification. Righteousness then, and it goes hand in hand with life, and unrighteousness goes hand in hand with death. That's the logic that God has embedded into creation itself. So if we aren't granted, if we aren't credited this righteousness in exchange for our, of our guilt to Christ, when our sin is imputed and guilt is imputed to Him, if we're not imputed with His righteousness and with His goodness, then we have nothing. We have no hope of entrance into heaven. But Jesus' righteousness extends beyond simply his obedience to the whole moral law and to the law that God had given to Israel at Sinai. This is a really important fact. His obedience to the will of the Father to do the work of salvation and lay down his life is a part of Jesus' obedience and righteousness uh, as well, and, it, and it's for this righteousness, it's for his obedience as that second Adam that he is rewarded with a, a declaration of justification and eternal life.
was thus the, the penal substitutionary atonement. That's the fancy term we have for it. That's referring to the pouring out of God's justice upon Christ on the cross for our sin. Penal substitutionary atonement. It was for his, his substitutionary death that uh, it was rather the substitutionary death of Jesus that demands resurrection. It demands resurrection. Why? Because he was obedient. He was the righteous one who bore your penalty as that second Adam according to the will and the, and the charge of the Father. So letter B, the presence of life indicates Jesus' justification and that he has a right or claim to it legally. So the basic principle we've been operating under and laid out is that life is de facto, that is by the very fact of, associated with righteousness. But for Christ, his righteousness is also de jure, that is by the law, associated with life. I'll give you a contrast or an example that, that maybe draws out what that means. English is de facto the language of the United States and its constitution. And it does not become de jure unless there is a command or a statement in that constitution that says that this is the, the language of the, of the United States. Life is de facto associated with righteousness, but it is also de jure, by the law, the reward that Christ is given. And God cannot remain just if Jesus was not rewarded for his obedience as the second Adam who gave his life as a ransom for the elect. God cannot remain just if Jesus for that obedience is not declared righteous if he is not raised from the dead. And that's the point of Philippians 2, 9 to 11. He was obedient to the point of death, therefore God has highly exalted him. And so as the obedient one in that, in that, in that bitter passion and death, he has a legal claim to justification and therefore to resurrection. Because Jesus was the righteous son of God, he would not remain under the wrathful condemnation of God which he bore in his death. His bitter passion and death for us demands resurrection because he was obedient in his bitter passion and death. Isaiah 53 indicates this clearly as well. As a promise, as a declaration, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. That's a way of talking about resurrection. Then will the Lord, then the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This isn't an insignificant thing. Scripture and our confession picking up on this says that he was raised for our justification. No resurrection, no justification. 
But since he was raised, we have justification. And that's also why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we of all people are fools. Because it was a legal verdict that he had claimed to, by which God declared him righteous and his work effective and complete. And so this means that in Christ, letter C, This means that in Christ's resurrection, you have legal claim to justification in life. Once again, that language of our confession, he was raised for our justification that we might have immortality and life. So it's not just some arbitrary principle. We are united with Christ in his death. That also means we are united in his resurrection and in that verdict and in that declaration that he is righteous. If Christ is not raised, you don't have justification. And if he is not raised, you don't have resurrection. And if, if he's not raised and, you're not, and he's not justified and you're not justified and you're not raised, you don't have entrance into the new heavens and the new earth. But because Jesus is raised, you can expect and you can lay claim to resurrection and to justification because he's earned it for you. And it's on account of God's, I love the title of the Belgic, God's mercy and justice in Christ. It's on account of God's justice that I can, that I can, I can lay claim to this life. It's his justice that gives me warrant to this life. It also displays his mercy, but it's his justice that gives me warrant to it. It cannot be taken away. And again, Isaiah 53 Therefore, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of the many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. That's beautiful. So the question, I suppose, is what does that mean practically for you? Reverend Smith, is. we we emailed a little bit back and forth about this sermon. He said, Vernon, you need to ask some more practical questions that speak to the everyday, I'm I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that speak to the everyday troubles and sorrows of people living in a sin-cursed world. He's smiling, so that makes me happy. Um, You know the death we said that there's no way out for? and that you can't escape, and that everybody has to reckon with, and that everybody has to deal with? It means nothing, because there is an escape in Christ. It is not that final verdict. It does not possess all doom. It is not a harrowing event that means the end and that means final judgment. Christ was certain, according to Psalm 27, that he would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And that is a claim and and an expression that you can take on your lips, that death is not the final verdict, but you will look upon the Lord in in the land of the living 
And so in this age of woefulness, in this age where the slings and, out, and arrows of outrageous misfortune constantly, uh, constantly assail themselves upon the people of God, in this age of death, you have confidence, righteousness, and life. And you don't have to overcome death. You don't have to deal with death because he dealt with it. You also don't have to suffer affliction meaninglessly. He didn't. He knew the verdict that he was to receive. He knew the, the, the affliction that he would suffer in infinite measure. The bitter passion and death that he would endure. And he went with joy. And so that means you too know your verdict. That after bitter passion and death, you will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, that you will be declared righteous. And given what we deserve, that what we deserve is eternal punishment and damnation in infinite measure. I say that this is and the gospel message is generally news that's too good to be true. And yet it is too good but true. That out of death, destruction, sin, anguish, hopelessness, we have a legal warrant to life and righteousness and light. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we do give you thanks for the bitter passion and death of Jesus Christ. But we also give you thanks for his perfect righteousness and obedience, not just to the whole of the law, but, for, but to your will that he would lay down his life for us. And we give you thanks for the confidence that we have that death does not have the final say, but that life everlasting does. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.